Welcome to the Carveline Tech Service Podcast, the go-to industrial coatings podcast. Here are your hosts, Jack Walker and Paula Jamis. Welcome to another edition of the Carveline Tech Service Podcast. I'm Jack Walker. With me, as always, is the Director of Technical Service. His name is Paul. Wait for it, a Jamis. Hey, Paul, how's it going? Going great, Jack. We got a couple of great guests coming up today. We do. I uh, spent most of this week in the land of oil and gas, so it's only natural that we'd have Doug Senatera, our oil and gas market manager, and Holly Tyler from SPC on. Uh, She is their engineering sales manager, and they're going to talk about oil and gas midstream, corrosion considerations, and basically give us an idea of what that uh, midstream actually is and what constitutes uh, assets, types of production facilities, and transport. Absolutely. All right, so here's our interview with Doug and Holly. Okay, joining us this week on the Carbolane Tech Service Podcast, you guys might recognize him. He's been with us a few times himself. It's the godfather himself, Doug Sinatera. How's it going? Hey, good to be back and excited to have Holly with us today. Well, I was getting there. Got patience, little one. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> also joining us from SPC is Holly Tyler. She is the engineering sales manager. Holly, how are you? Great. How are you guys doing today? Doing really well. It's great to have you with us today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Doug, it's kind of okay that yeah. you're here. Yeah. Yeah, you can. I can be your punching bag again. <laughs> you play that that role well, really well. So I've got thick skin. <laughs> so anyway, we have Doug and Holly here because we want to talk about oil and gas midstream. Since Holly works for SPC and that's mostly pipeline, that's exactly what midstream is. So I think that's really a good place to start. Uh, whichever one of you guys wants to answer, how do you guys describe the midstream market? So midstream is really about four things. When you think about it, you've got transportation, processing, storage, and in some cases, marketing. You know, last time we talked about the the genesis of oil and gas being exploration and drilling. This is the next step. Midstream is very dynamic. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Things can move very quick. They can move very slow. Very interesting things going on, and Holly and I are both going to capture a little bit of that. But when you look at midstream, you know, we're talking about specifically buried and surface pipelines. We're talking about storage, which we include crude storage, terminals, chemical storage, surface facilities that do some processing. And you've got stations in this being compressor stations, pump stations, and interconnects. Interconnects are basically where you've got a a gas operator that has a new contract and needs to to get access there. And then of course, LNG, liquefied natural gas is a big part of this. You know, that's a global market and certainly a lot of things we're gonna touch on today. There's also within that something called peak shaving. Most people don't know about it. Essentially it's a micro or small LNG plants. These were originally designed to capture some energy, especially in areas where you didn't have a strong pipeline network and in times of high consumption, high demand. But now these are being commercialized and several places are taking advantage of the commercial aspect of that. So really that's that's a good summary, if you will, of midstream. Excellent. That was a tremendous amount of information that you flew through. I'm assuming you've got some more that you can tell us about that. Why don't you get a little more into detail into some of those bullet points that you hit there? Yeah. So let's start with storage. I think between high and I will cover kind of the, the high high talked about areas, high demand areas. First, let's talk about storage. This is really tanks and vessels. So tanks, as I mentioned, you're storing crude oil, you're also storing chemicals, 
And then vessels are really where your pressurized gas goes. And the genesis of spheres is if a lot of people on here will recognize CBI, it used to be called CBI Horton, used to call these Horton spheres. So they're pressurized vessels on legs, uh, or in some cases, the, the storage will, will go all the way down uh, to the ground. Um, this is a really big area when you look at score footage, when you look at the, where it fits in the, in the dynamic, um, the, the impact in midstream. And the guidance here, API, American Petroleum Institute, really has a lot of guidance and, um, you know, overseas. And, and that's what people will subscribe to when, when it comes to building the, the tank assets. And then ASME is really your guidance on pressure vessels. So we'll talk a little bit more about some, some corrosion challenges later. But moving on to LNG, you know, I mentioned that. LNG plants are significant. They are big spin, which we'll cover. But you've got one to up to five tanks. These are double-walled in some cases, one concrete tank, one, you know, nickel steel tank. You know, some interesting uh, alloys in there. And then you have a train which helps process the, the gas. So these are governed by FERC uh, or some sim similar regulator. And the interesting thing here is, as I mentioned, this is, is a global business. And so some countries that are now developing LNG, they don't have the environmental, the institutional framework. They're building it from the ground up. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Holly, you want to touch on the pipeline part of this? Sure. The, the pipelines come in after the wellhead. So midstream is, is the middle ground, but before midstream, there's a gathering system that gathers the product, the hydrocarbon product from the wellhead. And that's usually smaller OD pipe and low pressure. That moves on and continues on to make the, the midstream portion, which is the largest transportation portion and the most movement. And that's considered usually mid-sized pipe, which is usually 12 to 24 inches in OD and medium pressure. Um, after this point, uh, there's a lot of processing that goes on and utilization and uh, breaking down the products into specific needs. Then onto the sometimes onto the transmission side, which is the large OD, large pressure, high pressure volume that do the cross country volume work for the pipeline systems. Pipelines kind of have gotten a bad rap lately in political forums. Now we're the cited one's pro, one's con. And I've been in the industry for 31 years and it's always been the safest mode of transportation for these products. The only other options for piping these is actually not piping them and putting them in rail cars or on semi-trucks and putting them on our infrastructures and our highways, which are already loaded down. If you've, you know, if you've made any kind of cross-country trip, the trucks are just putting a tremendous pressure on the infrastructure and it's, it's just very dangerous. So pipelines are still the, the safest mode. The aesthetics are great and we deal with a lot of, of government regulations now too. So it's not like they're putting them in the ground without any education. We deal with FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We deal with DOT, which is the Department of Transportation. And we deal with FEMSA, which is the Pipeline Hazardous Material Safety Administration. So we have to deal with all of these in, in the planning, development, the actual construction, and even after we're finished with the pipeline, we're still dealing with these regulations. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things, if you've paid attention to all 183 episodes of this here podcast, you uh, probably have an inclination of which one of those sides I'm on. And even I 
This is going to be the biggest giveaway comment I've given in all 183 <laughs> episodes. Even I am in favor of pipelines because of what you just said. And so we can do this safer through the pipelines. And uh, as long as we're this dependent on oil and gas for everything, it's really the safest way to go. And, so, you know, let this let's just add to that. We're also one of the biggest coatings and linings company for the rail. So even in rail movement, that still involves coatings that we understand. We know the process. We know it very well. So to still be on the side of a pipeline is is really, you know, we don't have all our eggs in one of those baskets. And it is still the most efficient and safest way to move product is with the pipeline. Absolutely. So that aside, what do you guys see as challenges within midstream build outs and maintaining the assets themselves? Because, you know, the pipelines, they're long. They go a real far away. So... I'm sure there's a lot of challenges there. Yeah, I'll, I'll kick off. You know, as you know, this is tied into the upstream and downstream sector. So just some practical challenges. You know, you look at where are you getting the gas and oil from and then building the related pipeline and midstream infrastructure and the storage. You know, how easy or difficult is it? We talked a little bit about that on the upstream side, but, you know, some countries you've got lots of land and lots of uh, area. Some are very already very favorable like we've been talking about, two oil and gas. Sometimes there's a lot of hurdles. So you've got a lot of that going on. The other thing is midstream, and, and we're going to touch on this a little bit too, that there's a lot of contract-based things going on. It's, it's not as easy and simple as you'll hear today as maybe upstream and, and downstream when it comes to operators. You've got a lot of different parties. You've got a lot of different banks, a lot of different folks involved. And so, you know, it's not just the integrated oil producer, the IOPs that, that we talk a lot about. It's it's a varying mix of, of people there. You know, the other thing is when you look at from an investment perspective, I, I touched on LNG and I think it's important we, we capture it. You're talking about very significant investments. I mean, we're talking 1 billion up to, in some cases, 20 billion. The contracts, you may have one to four global EPCs. You're getting equipment, piping, labor from all over the world. And, you know, back in the 2000s when LNG projects really were scaled up and, and growing, you, you had a really a tough run rate of 40, 50% of the projects were over budget over time. So a lot of challenges there. There are regulatory challenges. Holly, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the, the regulatory challenges these days are just like anything else. When you think about our government, there's just a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. And it starts in the survey part portion. So when you decide you want to build a pipeline, you choose a route. And then once, that, once the route's chosen, you, you have to do all kinds of environmental surveys uh, that deal with the wildlife, the terrain, the water sources, um, existing pipelines pipelines, um, you're working with DOT. So just to plan to build a pipeline, it takes years and years. And the regulatory procedures are so much more intense than they used to be. And obviously political, which, you know, my opinion is it shouldn't be involved, but it is. And it, it makes a difference. And it's really charged our industry into ups and downs more downs than ups, but some of the ups have been significant in the, in the last few years, I would say. Everybody's familiar with our carbothane 134HG, but what we did is we took that and we put some more UV resistance in there, and that's where we got the carbothane 134 UV Ultra. This exceeds the SSPC coding specification number 36 level 3A. That is the highest you can get. Can't get any higher than that. So this is the top of the line UV resistance that you can get in a polyurethane. 
It is suitable for your AWWA OCS systems, uh, five, six, and seven. But basically you would want to use this anywhere where you want exceptional UV resistance, color and gloss retention. This is your product, the Carbothane 134 UV Ultra. Excellent. So it looks like there's a lot of good comparisons and, and some differences. What do you see as the main difference between the owner operators of the, let's say the midstream segment as compared to the rest of the oil and gas industry? The owners and operators today in the mid 2000s, there was a big shift. Uh, you know, when I started in the industry in the in the early 90s, you were dealing with all the major asset owners like Phillips 66, Chevron, Shell, people like that. When the Shell plays came into play, which was in the early 2000s, which made it easy to horizontally drill, which, it, you know, it was invented and it was very successful. So we were able to get to gas that was trapped under huge Shell plays of rock and and under that gas was very, very rich oil. So the shell plays kind of played a role in changing the people that are investing in these. And that became cash equity people, people like Goldman Sachs, banks, just people pulling their money together and forming LLCs and actually building the pipelines to either keep as an investment or most of the time they flip them and end up selling them to another larger operator. Yeah, and just to, to tack onto that too, Paul, there if you look at it things from a company perspective, when you have folks that don't have a long history, a lot of standards, a lot of, you know, specified practices that you have to build, that that comes into play obviously when we're talking about corrosion and what we do because, you know, you've got a very different philosophy on construction, on maintenance, specifications are a lot of times with these new companies non-existent, they'll buy them or use what they know before. So it's a very interesting dynamic. You have very critical infrastructure and assets. And in some cases, you know, you're having to really piecemeal together these technical documents because as Holly alluded to, you know, there's a very commercial drive to get these facilities up and going and, and to have investment partners. For sure. And, and as you can see, both Doug and Holly definitely know what they're talking about. So we definitely, if you guys are out there listening to this, you have any questions, definitely hit us up at technical service at carboline.com. We can get you in touch with either Doug or Holly, and then you can ask them any questions that you guys have. But what we want to do next is uh, I kind of want to talk about, you know, we, we know about the assets and the different things that are happening at midstream now, but let's talk about the corrosion challenges that we see at the midstream portion of the oil and gas process. Yeah, well, we did say the market's dynamic, so the corrosion challenges are much the same. So I'll start with storage, you know, as a theme. So think about tanks. You've got roughly on a 150-foot diameter storage tank, 50 to maybe 60,000 square feet of surface, except in Alberta where I lived for a few years, uh, they don't get coated there, but you, you have the external corrosion, which is obvious. You know, depending upon tank roof design, you may have external floating roof, which creates ponding water and, and almost a very uh, semi-immersive, you know, condition. You have, and then you go inside the tank, we know tank bottoms corrode. So for crude oil, it's typically corrosion of the floor and three foot up is where you'll provide your coating. If it's a chemical commodity, you may go all the way up the shell, but then add to that the underside of a floating roof. Sometimes you're looking at very complex geometry and a lot of times the application isn't thought to be done until the tank's erected and you have these major, as you guys know, challenges to properly prepare those surfaces. So you have a lot of moving parts 
The other thing is tanks are built on sand beds. Some are built on concrete where the lip of the tank is and the, and the, the bottom of the pad, whatever that may be. You have the permeation of moisture that goes under there. So you, you've got to get that you know, taken care of with a coating and then add to the complexity where underneath the tank beds, you may have a CP system, you may have CP with vapor phase inhibitors. So it's, there, there's a lot going on there. You know, let's look at LNG again. It's, it's similar to that, but you also have this cryogenic element. So you're going to have to, you know, protect against any cryogenic spill and obviously have a, you know, a rated fire protection system there. You've got insulated pipe and equipment sometimes operating at very high temperature, very high pressure. So again, we're talking about very large amounts of square feet. And so you have to get things right. And then of course, there's all the related and interconnected piping. Holly, maybe you can touch on the pipeline side and the corrosion elements there. On the pipeline side, the majority of the pipelines are buried underground, although there is a small percentage that are above ground or weighted in, in like waterways. But I, the, the largest majority is buried. So I kind of break that down in, in three areas. So when you're burying a pipe, you have to consider where you're burying it and the soil, the geography, and the amount of stress that's put on the soil, whether it stays the same temperature all times of year or if it goes from hot to cold, if the soil's contaminated or it's highly volatile, if it's sand, if it's rock, obviously you have to bore through it. So the corrosion, obviously that's the number one concern usually when we design and pick a coating for the steel pipeline. The second part of corrosion is actually um, caused by the product itself. So the hydrocarbons that flow through it, there's coatings that we use on the ID of the pipe as well. Some of the products are highly corrosive, especially some of these renewable products that we're seeing. A lot of the pipeline construction is, is trying to focus on the renewables. So the sour gas and the products that are made from waste are highly volatile. And so we have to coat the inside of the pipeline to withstand the corrosion that they put under. Um, also high operating temperatures, so really high temperatures cause the pipe to expand and move. And also sometimes even um, coatings can help flow efficiency. So if you have a you need a really high flow, sometimes the coating can aid in, in the flow capacity of the, of the actual product going through the pipeline. And the third being, we have a lot of old infrastructure. It's aging, it's old, it needs rehabilitation. A lot of times you rarely see, you know, a line relocate or a line replace. And um, the integrity part of our pipeline industry is huge. It's the part of the pipeline that monitors and does the maintenance. And so these are this is done continuously on a system, 365 days a year, and then it starts over again. So a lot of these pipelines are, are really old and aging out. And Carboline and SPC can come through with ideas and concepts to add to this without replacing it that make the pipelines functional and safe again. Yeah, and Holly, just to add to that, you know, you mentioned the, the integrity part, the MRO maintenance part of midstream. It certainly is developed, but like many industries, there's a lot of good technology and I think advances that are the industry is slow to adopt. So, you know, a, a lot of what you see is these high profile public events, but there is a lot of work behind the scenes to really up the game. People are really working hard at integrity, but to Holly's point, you know, you've got such a fragmented market that sometimes the money isn't there, the resources aren't there, but it's an industry that's really working hard to uh, certainly upgrade the infrastructure. So Holly, you said something that actually piqued my interest and it's a, it's a little adjacent to what we're talking about. So when you, when you talked about, uh, 
uh, the different types of uh, sand and rock and things like that. Do you know when they're planning the routes for the pipelines, do they take geological surveys into consideration or are they just like, we can buy this land and we can get it. So that's the way we're going. They do. That's usually in part of the environmental study is they take samples um, of, of the soil, the rock. GPS has really aided in that. So, you know, Google Earth, um, <laughs> I don't know what we did before that, but you can mark specific locations and pinpoint them very accurately. You know, mainly water sources are, are the biggest concern um, on, on most every level. But, you know, here in Oklahoma, we just did a pipeline, an LNG pipeline that went across the state horizontally. And Oklahoma has a lot of rock. We have um, a very mountainous area down in the southeast. And it was one of the hardest pipeline projects I've ever been on. And I've, you know, I've been on ones in the northwest and, and in the Marcellus in the northeast. So there's a lot of rock. That's another challenge. But that's that's sometimes not necessarily just corrosion, and that's um, hardness protection, which is a mechanical part of the coating system. And Carboline and SBC both have a lot of products, and we're doing a lot of research to improve those products, but there's a um, mechanical protection that gets involved with that to protect the corrosive protection that protects the pipe. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to it, especially in installation costs when you're looking at loose sediment versus rock. I mean, it's night and day. So that's, right. it, was, it was something that just made me, uh, it sparked my interest when you were talking. Paul, you look like you got something you want to say. No, I was just being nice at the whole beginning of this conversation that when Doug mentioned things move fast and slow, I didn't even bring up the fact of how much slower things move in Houston when it gets cold. Oh, oh no, you just let it go. You're going to never let Doug, I'm not going to lie. And this will be the last thing I was in Houston this week and it started thunderstorming and we're all at a restaurant and the lights started flickering and all the locals were like, Nope. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> so anyway, thank you very much, Holly and Doug. We appreciate your time here on the Carbline tech service podcast. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Take care. All right. You're welcome. You got to watch out. We got two gingers together again. So uh, the statistics are way off right now. And uh, there's too many of us world domination. So, yeah. All right, guys. For Paul, I'm Jack. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. And so for the Carboline Tech Service Podcast, I'm Paul. And I'm Jack. And we'd, we'd like, like to thank, thank you for your support. support. Who put the light?